Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. In this episode, we'll be discussing surrogacy from the point of view of a recent surrogate. Our guest has spent most of her life working with babies. Starting as a mother's helper at age 11, she continuously garnered knowledge about pregnancy, birth, and raising children from the families she was working with. Later, after having three kids of her own and feeling grateful and fortunate for uncomplicated conception, pregnancy, and birth, she yearned to help others who were struggling with fertility to achieve their dream through surrogacy. Kalila Green, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. I mean, surrogacy is not as common as I thought it was when I was just like doing a little Googling around where I get all my accurate information. Of course. I saw that there's somewhere around 5,000 surrogate babies a year in the United States, and there are 4 million births of the year in the United States. It's a tiny percentage. It really is. I don't know what the exact numbers are, so I'm going to take your word for it. Okay. But it is something where even as I said to people – You know, people say, oh, you're pregnant. It's so good to see that you're having another baby or whatever it might be. I would say, oh, it's not mine. (laughs) It was my favorite phrase. And they would say, what do you mean it's not yours? And I would tell them that I was a surrogate. And then the first thing they would say is, oh, I've never met a surrogate before. And in all the places I went to, I think one person had said that they had known somebody who either had a surrogate or was a surrogate. Know somebody who knows somebody who Right, and it was something crazy where so many people get pregnant on a monthly basis or daily basis or whatever it might be that you would think that more people would have known a surrogate. Since you said that, probably three or four people got pregnant. Probably. Hmm. (laughs) Let's start at the beginning. (laughs) Where are you from? Originally from Pennsylvania. Oh. And then by way of Boston, came out to L.A. in 2003. That's an interesting route. Yes. Well, school was in Boston, and then Ah. I was sick of the cold weather. So L.A. it was. And my parents at that point had actually moved to Utah. So there was really not going home to me. Oh, go visit the ski. Exactly, which is what we do now. (laughs) And then I did a bunch of odd jobs in L.A. I was working at a recruiting firm. I worked at a non-for-profit organization and never found something that I was passionate about until I started having my own kids. And my whole life I've been passionate about working with kids and working with babies and learning as much as I can about pregnancy and labor and baby products and everything that goes into that. And when I had my own, I realized that was really where my passion lied. And I became a homeschool mom. 
So I'm home with my kids every day, which people think I'm crazy for anyway. Well, you you, you might be crazy, but here's the thing. We homeschooled for a couple of years also, and one of the first things I noticed at the beginning of homeschool is that when school starts, the kids don't leave. What do you mean? Yeah, they stay home. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> All day long. No, they actually, I mean, there's a lot of things that we do that are outside the house. I think homeschooling is a whole other topic we could go off on. For, for sure, we could. But hours. I, but it definitely takes a, the kind of person or people that really like being around their kids. Yes. It's not easy, even if you love it, but it's, it's really cool. It has some very cool benefits to it. But it's very true. And I know my kids very, very well because of it. And they know each other really well, right. and uh, they don't come home and have to compete hard for your attention because right. they only get two hours of it a day. There's a lot of benefits to it, and there's a lot of challenges with it. I think some people do it better than other people. With one of my kids, I was hoping to transfer her to a different homeschool. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the point is you love being around kids. I and do. it started early, like as a mother's helper. It's one thing to have a job and help somebody, either because you're doing a kindness or getting paid for it, but to really enjoy it at that age kind of a sign of your maternal insides. It was. My mom, when I was little, always used to say that she didn't have baby genes. I'm an only child. She was good with one kid, and that was it. And for me, I wanted brothers and sisters. I wanted babies. And she worked with people. My mom owned a travel agency, so she had people around her that were having babies for a long time. And every time a baby would be born or every time we found out someone was pregnant, the first thing I said was, can I go be with them? Can I go stay with them? I want to see what's going on. So it was very much something that I was passionate about from a very young age. Yeah, also, I just wonder with the only kids if it just – if that gets in your head like this craving to be around other kids. Maybe. I don't know. I'm I don't know. My best friend that. was an only child, and she's the exact opposite of me. Oh, really? So, yeah. She hates kids? <laughs> Not that she hates them, but um, she only has one, and I think she's also good with an only oh, child. Oh, in that way. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, so for you, I mean, when you were ready to have kids, it seems like it wasn't um, difficult for you. Thank God. It really was not difficult in any way. When I remember working for the non-for-profit, there was somebody that I worked with who knew how passionate I was about kids and said, I only wish for you that it's easy for you to get pregnant because I know it's going to be a disappointment if you have to go through something as horrible as infertility. Mm, It's challenging. And literally my daughter was born almost exactly nine months to the day. Oh, after that conversation. Well, when my (laughs) husband and I got married. Oh, I see. Um, Our anniversary is August 29th and her birthday is May 28th. So it's literally nine months almost to the day. Wow. Okay. So just a few minutes. Yeah, Um, (laughs) seriously. Uh, And then how was your pregnancy? Thank God. My pregnancies are so easy. I know that I sound like... Like you're lying. (laughs) Yes. People look at me and they think, but you get bigger and you gain a lot of weight and your ankles get swollen and your face gets puffy and you have all the normal pregnancy symptoms. And a lot of them, yes, I get. And a lot of them I don't get. My face doesn't get puffy. My ankles don't really get swollen. I don't get a lot of morning sickness. I don't really get the aches and pains that most people get of being pregnant. That's incredible. I got all of those things with all of our pregnancies. I'm sure. It's rough on everybody. It's not easy for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, you know, this is what I do for a living. I see pregnant people all day long, probably a dozen sessions a day of prenatal care. And I see some people who get every single one of those symptoms, and it doesn't bother them at all, either because they just love being pregnant right. and love that little child inside them. Mm-hmm. And all those nuisances is what they would call them. All those nuisances are just worthwhile. Right. So they they can, in their mind, choose to focus on the part that they love or the part that they don't love, and they focus on the part they love. But it's much, much more challenging for some people, either 
because of certain things like morning sickness is such a vague term. It right. can affect people in such different ways. Sometimes it's just a little nausea and vomiting. Sometimes it's a lot of nausea or mm-hmm. a lot of vomiting. Sometimes just a few weeks. Sometimes it's the whole pregnancy. And right. sometimes it turns into something much worse like hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a totally different thing. And it's really, really torturous. You know, so it's not to say, oh, you have nausea and vomiting and you can just look the other way. It affects people in different ways. The weight gain affects people in different ways. Even just thinking somebody who's 100 pounds and gains, let's say, 35 pounds, that's a lot. That's a 35% increase for them versus someone who's 200 pounds and gains 35 pounds. It's a different strain on their muscles and bones and joints and things like that. So there's so many factors that go into how you experience a pregnancy. But for you, it just seems like you really love being pregnant. I do. I really do. (laughs) I call it my superpower. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And I think that nobody should feel bad about themselves for not liking elements of pregnancy and hating elements of pregnancy, frankly. But it's just experienced by different people in different ways. So you're right. definitely one of those people that, you know, I would even say the same thing. I'm going to get hate mail for this, but I would say the same <laughs> thing about hiking. Okay. You know, some people love hiking, even though it's hard and you're out of breath and your ankles hurt and your feet hurt. They love it anyway and they want to go back and do it again and again. And I don't even like driving to the hike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I suffer. Every footstep is horrible for right. me. And I mean, so, it's like marathon running also, where if you've got a marathon runner, they tell you every single time they would do it over and over and over again. Even though. And I look at them and I'm like, you're running over 23 miles. You're crazy. Yeah. I literally don't have the stamina to drive that far. So, <laughs> But they will tell you, like, it's very challenging and it's hard and it's a right. mind game and it's a physical game. But they love it. So right. pregnancy, that's you for it's pregnancy. True. You just you love – you sign up for a new pregnancy every other week if you could. Maybe, I would. I mean, I, the second the baby was born, I, I had said – Let's I do want to do again. it again. Is everybody ready? And for your births of your babies, did you also enjoy that process? For the most part, I enjoyed the births and the labor. I mean, the labor is obviously the more difficult part because birth is really just the baby coming out. A moment. In Whereas time, yeah. the labor in and of itself, I would say, of course, it's hard. It wouldn't be called labor if it wasn't hard. But it's so worthwhile. And it you know that your body's doing something incredible and natural and something that people have done for thousands of years. I mean, we all wouldn't be here if we all didn't have somebody who gave birth. So I feel like it's just part of that link of connecting to past generations. And for you, were your births, like, so some people give birth and then they want to have another baby and they're like, ugh, that birth. But they kind of put it into the back of their mind. They get pregnant again. But as it gets close, it's like, ugh, I got to do that birthing again. No, my births were definitely like, oh, I could do that again. Yeah. Looking forward, like I'm excited for another one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And even after my third, my husband said, you might not want to tell this to a lot of people because it sounds crazy, (laughs) but I'm going to say it anyway. When he came out, I had ended up getting an epidural with him, and I said to him, I want to do that again because I really want to try it unmedicated, but you can't just push him right back in. No, no, that's not. I've never seen that happen. Only if you sort of videotape it, then you could rewind it, but it's not the same. No, it's not the same. Yeah, okay. All right, so after you had your three... When does the concept and how does the concept of surrogacy, again, it's so rare, it's not that common. How do you fall into that? So I had always thought about it. I went to a very liberal arts school for college, and I had a lot of friends who came out of the closet. And so one of those things that I had thought about as I was getting older was, how are they going to have a baby if it's two men? Two mm-hmm. women, obviously, it's very easy. Well, One of them can get pregnant. Yeah. They have a donor sperm, no problem. They have, they are, they have two carriers. It's exactly. Like rock, paper, scissors. Exactly. Or even both could be pregnant at the same mm-hmm. time. I've seen that too. Yeah. 
But with a lot of my guy friends, I really thought in my head, how are they going to do this? And there was three specifically that I had said even before I'd met my husband. If you ever want to have kids, I will carry them for you. Wow. And I'd never been pregnant. I didn't know what it was like. But you didn't I didn't even know how... you were going to like it. Exactly. But I knew how much I loved babies and how much I loved families that I wanted to do that for them without even thinking about it. And ironically enough, being a surrogate, I wasn't even a surrogate to one of them. It was somebody who I'd never met before. Oh, really? But the idea was already with you. Yeah, the idea had been with me for a long time. That's like kind of incredible that you would even think that for this other person to say, like, you're going to need a uterus. <laughs> yeah, I just I'll, I'm I'll passionate about the whole process. And it's before you knew that you're going to really like pregnancy yeah. and birth. Wow, that's really special. All right. Now there's a lot more to the story. So I'm going to take a little <laughs> break and we're going to come back and jump into the meat of it. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Kalila Green. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking about surrogacy with a recent surrogate, Kalila Green. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. So you make this uh, decision that you want to help other people achieve parenthood. And how do you find who you're going to work with? There is really one way to find a couple in terms of the most popular way, and that's through a surrogacy agency. There are times where I've heard that people can be recommended and say, oh, this person or this couple is looking for a surrogate. Do you happen to know anybody? But it's very rare that that happens. It's usually that the person who is wanting to be a surrogate will go to the agency and the person or people who want to have a baby with a surrogate will go to the agency and then they'll start to match people? Right. Okay. Do you have a say in the intended parent or parents that you work with? You do. What they do is they have you fill out with either yourself or your partner a very long questionnaire, which is about five pages, and it goes into various different questions of what you're comfortable with in terms of your own pregnancies, were your pregnancies healthy, did you have any issues, all different kinds of backgrounds with you and your husband and you and your partner and how you had your own babies. And then when you do that and you're accepted to be a surrogate, they then give you a profile that they think they could match you up with. 
Do they do like physical, medical health testing, psychological health testing? They do after you're matched. Oh, really? Not yes. until you're matched? Yes. Why Which, would they wait till you're matched to find out if you're... Because every couple or every person has a different fertility agency that they're going to. Okay. And you have to go to their fertility agency. To do your medical, to and, do your medical and mental health testing? Exactly. Oh. They have their own psychologists. They have their own testing. Seems and like it would be better if the surrogacy agency had it, only because they could rule things out before there's potential... So I think that they do look for the fact – part of what we answered was a little bit more of a medical background from my perspective and, and my history, making sure that I had healthy pregnancies, making sure that I went full term, I didn't have preeclampsia, things like that that are general health of you and the, the babies, no miscarriages, no abortions, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then once they know that there's a general baseline that they can work from, then they say, okay, we know you're healthy. We know we want to accept you to be a surrogate. Now let's match you with the right person or right couple. And we can then work with their fertility agency mm-hmm. on all the things that are required. Also, because sometimes insurance doesn't work with one fertility group versus another. For example, my insurance only kicked in after my first trimester versus other fertility groups might have been earlier, but this was who my the couple that I ended up working with, who they were working with. Okay, so you met your couple. I mean, you made a match with your couple. Do they? Do you generally meet early on? or You do. You meet very early on. Okay. Um, when you both say that you want to meet the other person, you, it's almost like a dating profile where you get their information and they get your information, and you can see sort of what their goals are for their family and what they want out of or having a surrogate, and you have the same thing for them, and you say, okay, we want to meet. If they're not in the same state or even in the same country, which is very often the case, you then Skype with the agency involved. So it's not just them saying, okay, good luck. They then have you meet by Skype with all four little boxes on the computer. Uh um, And you talk to the intended parent or parents and you talk with the mediator. And after that conversation, you can then say for sure, yes, we connected with this person, or no, we didn't connect with this person, and you move forward. Wow, it's like speed dating. It is. It very much is like dating somebody. (laughs) So you ended up working with a couple. I did. Was it a gay couple? It's not. It was a a man Uh, and a woman. Your original thought was, I'm going to help out a gay couple. But it also, people use surrogacy because sometimes, uh, for various different reasons, they either are unable, don't want to, uh, medically can't carry the baby, but they can oftentimes use their own sperm and egg to make the baby. Right. And then was your couple local? They were not. So They are in the United States, but they're not in California. Yeah, so that happens a lot. I guess also because there's not so many surrogates that uh, you end up working with people that are not too close to you. It's true. And also there are other states that have different laws about surrogacy. It's becoming more popular, but only in the last few years where there was really only two states that had very strict surrogacy laws on the books. Or even clear. Or even clear surrogacy laws, exactly. And now it's becoming a little bit more popular that more states have accepted the idea of surrogacy and it's not just paying a woman for the use of her body. Right. Um, And so it's legal in more states. Yeah. I remember 15, 16 years ago, a very close friend of ours needed to use a surrogate and it was a hellish process. I'm sure. Trying to find one and they eventually did and it went well, but there were so many devastating moments along the way. Mm of getting close and and also the legalities in that particular state. There yes. just were no clear laws on the books. Right. And, and so, now, fortunately, lawyers are getting much more experienced in this. And a lot of times a family law lawyer will be experienced enough that they can either refer you to a specific surrogacy lawyer or family adoption lawyer. They're all sort of the same idea. They're in the same um, genre. Exactly. Yeah. 
So you guys decided to uh, to hit the button and accept yes. each other. You were going to be their surrogate. They were going to be your intended parents. Yes. Uh, so that sounds weird. But <laughs> I think we all know what I mean. And what's the next step after that? The next step is hopefully meeting face-to-face. Obviously, that's a little bit more challenging if the couple is out of the country. Sure. But or even out of state, sometimes hard. Out of state, it's ironically, it's not as hard because I feel like people who get into knowing that they want to have a surrogate have a lot of money put away. And they're they, willing to... They might not be rich, but they have some money put away because they know that this is what they're investing in. Right. And so they know that they want to meet the person who's then going to carry their child. Right. So if it's not face-to-face, a lot of times it's just a lot of phone talking and a lot of Skyping or FaceTiming, things of the sort. And then you have to make sure that you know that you're close to an area that you can get to their fertility group mm-hmm. because they need to then obviously make sure the embryos are close. They need to be able to start doing all of their medical tests, make sure that you're healthy, your uterus is healthy, and then move on into the next stage of starting medication. And once you've gotten all the contracts signed, doing the actual science part of it. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Like it could be that you're using even a donated embryo mm-hmm. sometimes that's not from this couple right. or his sperm and somebody else's egg mm-hmm. or her egg and somebody else's sperm. In your case, was it both intended parents' sperm and egg? It was. And that was actually one of the things I would say all the time. People would say, but you're just carrying the baby. It's not yours. And I would say, no, genetically, it's not mine or my husband's in any way, shape, or form. It is all the intended parents. Right. And for them, it's the opposite. It's totally our right. gametes. You right. know, Just like any other couple that gets together and have a kid. It's, exactly. It's genetically very similar. It's the same, but right. they... Just conceived very differently. Right, and incubated differently. Right. So you're essentially doing IVF. Yep. And let's say IVF has, let's say without a surrogate, a couple is going to do IVF. Mm-hmm. So you need to get sperm. Yes. And uh, usually it's washed and analyzed and cleaned. And you need to get eggs mm-hmm. through the procedure, which is essentially stimulating the intended mother to make more eggs than usual and then to retrieve them with a little process where they essentially, I'm simplifying all this, but essentially go in and suck all the little eggs out. Right. And then uh, you kind of also can analyze those a little bit. And there's lots of, there's actually different ways to get the eggs and the sperm together. They can mm-hmm. all just swim together and see who meets up or you can <laughs> actually inject a sperm into an egg. But either way, then you see how they grow and then sometimes hopefully have several embryos to choose from. Right. And you pick one or more embryos to then transfer. So the second part of the IVF is now we have made these embryos with this couple. Mm-hmm. And in a typical IVF, it would be transferred back into. So you would take that embryo and put it into the womb right. and hope for the best and Generally speaking, in a couple of weeks, you know if that embryo is going to start growing or not, and then it's like a general pregnancy, any other pregnancy. I mean, I guess it is in terms of the fact that with IVF, I'd never done IVF before, so you have to continue your medications to the end of the first trimester, mm-hmm. and they slowly wean you off of them. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was a little bit different. Oh, you did? Yeah, but I was just talking about a regular... Yes. Uh, for, for regular IVF. But yeah, and then so here the major difference is the second part, they do the first part just the same, right? right? And the second part, instead of putting the embryo into the intended mother, they put the embryo into the surrogate, which in this case is you. Right. Whew. Right. <laughs> and so the embryo transfer mm-hmm. can either be done fresh or frozen. So mm-hmm. fresh meaning it never gets frozen. They just take the sperm, take the egg, wait till it grows into a certain stage where it can be implanted right. and then do it right then. Or they can freeze a bunch of embryos and at a time that's right, then they can throw it out and transfer it. Did you guys do fresh or frozen? We did frozen because all of their embryos were actually made 
where they're from and were flown to California, oh, which you, is where you I flew them from there to here. Yes. So they already got frequent flyer before they were Seriously. born. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then did they come in for the transfer? So we did two transfers because the first one didn't work and they were here for the first one. Oh, meaning they transferred and you waited to see if a pregnancy would and happen. It didn't take. There was no pregnancy. Right. Oh. Um, which I think I actually you? took harder than they did. Really? I mean, the reason they went to surrogacy is because they had been through infertility for almost three years. Oh, wow. And so for them, it was just sort of another hopes up and then losing it. So for them, it was more of that roller coaster. For me, thank God I've never had to deal with that. I've never had a miscarriage. I've never had that emotional connection with the child and then lost it. Mm-hmm. And I think I took it harder than they did when I found out I wasn't pregnant because I was so sure that it would be so easy. and. Mm-hmm. It well, your only experience is... That it, would, it happens. It happens, and their right. only experience is that it doesn't happen. Right. So So I think when I got off the phone with the doctor, I was crying hysterically, and my oh. husband was comforting me, and my oldest daughter was comforting me. Oh, and, wow. And it took me a few days to then say, okay, I want to try again. Because How old were your kids at that time? My kids at the time were seven and five and two. Wow. And did you already explain to them ahead of time what was going on? I had had very long conversations with my Mm seven-year-old who seemed to understand what was going on. She's very mature. I mean, she's a girl and she's the first one. So Mm -hmm. obviously that comes with the territory and Mm -hmm. homeschooled. And so she definitely understood the idea that because I could grow babies very well and because I had three healthy pregnancies that I was doing this for somebody else. But one of the questions that she had asked a few different times a few months apart were, if there's more than one baby, do we get to keep one? <laughs> and I kept having to say, no, if we have more than one, none of them are ours. Doesn't matter if there's five. Right. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Or if there's one, they're but not ours. Were you guys just putting in one embryo? They did two. You did two the both times? Yes. Okay. So also, if you're not familiar with assisted reproductive technology, oftentimes you have to make a choice if do you want to put in one embryo or two. There's always a decent chance that an embryo is not going to take. So you make a choice. Do you want to just put in one or do you want to increase your odds that there'll be a pregnancy by putting in more than one? Right. And there's a lot of factors that go into that decision. So you put in two and it didn't take. And then you did two more. We did two more, but the parents weren't here at that time. Okay. The mom made it very clear that it was emotionally too difficult for her. Oh, wow. And that she wanted to be at home. Removed. And if it worked, then I would let her know. Okay. And so fortunately, two weeks later, when I went for the blood test and we got the positive results, we all sort of celebrated on the phone. But you also kind of knew there was a chance for multiples. I did. And I was okay with that. Um, that's the other part of it where I've always loved twins and I've always thought that I'm going to have twins. So <laughs> when I had that. actually- Maybe this will be it. Yeah, exactly. When I told my parents that I wanted to be a surrogate, my mom said, I am going to laugh so hard if you have twins for someone else. Yeah. We have an episode of the podcast with my colleague, another chiropractor in the office who they did IVF and they had to make a choice. Did they want to put in one embryo or two? And they said, you know what, we'd rather just put in one and take the chance that it won't take rather than risking multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just put in one and it split and they oh, had twins. that's so funny. Yeah. So there you go. Good thing they didn't put in two. They could have had quads. Yeah. So, wow, it's already time to take another break. I do want to ask one question before we get there. This is the beginning of, because that decision, do you put in one or two, affects both of you. It affects them because it increases or decreases their odds of a pregnancy at Mm -hmm. all. But it affects you because it increases and decreases the odds of multiples, which I guess really affects all of you. So is that a decision that you make together? 
it was a decision that we made together where as long as I was comfortable with it, then they were going to put two embryos in. Mm -hmm. And so I think the decision really fell on myself and my husband to Mm -hmm. say, yes, we know the risks. We know the bed rest idea later on. We know that there are different health risks that come with a multiple pregnancy. And we were all willing to take that. Uh So So it is something that you become very close with your intended parents because of all these decisions that need to be made along the way. Yeah, and that's sort of my opening question because I'm just thinking all throughout pregnancy how many decisions we had to make and through labor and delivery how many Mm -hmm. decisions we had to make that kind of affect both the mother and the baby. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure that'll be a theme that comes up in segment three when we talk all about your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Kalila Green about surrogacy from the point of a surrogate. So now you are pregnant, and you did say the first trimester is a little different. Were you taking, like, progesterone and things to just Progesterone. I had an estrogen patch. I had a pill that I had to take. My husband would help me out with the progesterone shots because those you have to do. In the glute. In the bum. Yep. Thick oil in the bum. Yes. And they had left marks all over my hips, and it was... It was that was the only part that I would say was rough. A bonding experience. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, my husband doesn't mind the needle part of it, yeah, so that's good. Yes, um, but my kids all got involved as well because they would say, "Isn't it time for your medicine? Don't Aww. you have to take your stuff now? Do we have to be home because we have to do this and this?" And so it was very cute to see them getting so involved. And also, every time we would do it, we would say, "This is for the intended parents. This is for the baby that's hopefully very healthy." So, What's that moment like when you call the parents and tell them it's a go? They. I think got the call first because technically it's their baby. Oh, so they found out you were pregnant before, before you found I out did. you were pregnant? Yes. And the, the fertility company warns you not to take a pregnancy test because <gasps> you could get false negatives and they don't want you to do that because oh, wow. then you get discouraged. And so you go in Wait, for, So you take a test and only they see the result? Because it's a blood test. You do it. Oh, the beta. Yes. Uh, so you do the blood test once at the hospital that's closest, I guess, to you that has a, a diagnostic area. Uh-huh. And then once they get the confirmed pregnancy, then you go back two days later to make sure that the numbers have doubled. And then right. you go back two days later to make sure that the numbers Double doubled again. again. Yeah. And then you go into the doctor to say, okay, now let's check the embryo and see what's going on. Oh, wow. Um, so they got the call first and then she called me. Okay. So it was a very weird experience to have somebody else be like, we're pregnant, <laughs> but it's not yours. <laughs> right. And it was fun. It was really, from that moment on, I think we were bonded just to know that I had their baby and that I was going to take care of it. And when you go for routine doctor visits, would they come in for those or just? They didn't. I actually didn't see them from the time of the first transfer until 
two weeks before I gave birth. Oh, wow. So the whole pregnancy really was just like a routine It was a fairly normal pregnancy. The only difference was that I would FaceTime them a lot when I would be either at the big ultrasounds. Oh, the structural or something like that. And I would text them. Everybody would say, well, what do you do when you leave the doctor's office? Didn't your husband want to know what was going on? Or don't you text your parents? And no, they're not the first people I call. The first people I call are the intended parents. And I give them the whole report. And every time I would leave the doctor's office, I would then call the mom and say, this is everything that happened. Everything's healthy. This is what's going on. Or I'd take a picture of the ultrasound and text it to her. And then I would call my husband and say, by the way, everything's fine. And that was it. Just coincidentally. Right. Um, I remember the first time a surrogate couple came into the office and I nowhere did they tell me verbally or in the paperwork that this was a surrogate intended parent relationship. Two women came in. I've had many two women couples having babies. I started to talk to them, and I feel like what happened was the baby was breech, and they were wanting to have a vaginal birth. Mm-hmm. And so we started to talk about the different things that we do to try to open up space and whatnot, but it was weird how the questions were going, and I didn't get it right away. When I would ask a question, when I'd give kind of a, a risk factor as part of the informed consent, this is one of the risks that could happen, maybe bruising or swelling or dis- discomfort, the person who was carrying the baby would answer the question. And when we would talk about maybe risks to the baby or different things that might be affecting the baby, the other partner would answer the question. And it wasn't until at least halfway through this initial consultation that it occurred to me, this is a surrogate relationship. It was the first one for me. But what actually I'm trying to take out of that is that there are decisions that have to be made all the way through that affect mm-hmm. sometimes the baby, sometimes the surrogate, in your case, or sometimes both. Mm-hmm. So are all those decisions made together? Is there from the beginning like an agreement on who has say over these decisions? There is. I mean, the contract in and of itself is over 30 pages long. Wow. And so it goes into all the little minutiae details of what happens, even from the perspective of, God forbid, you need to have an abortion or you need to have a fallopian tube removed or you need to have an ovary removed or or even to go so far as to say that the baby isn't healthy and now you're losing your uterus, God forbid. Mm-hmm. There, Every little tiny detail is in the contract. And so before you even get pregnant, you know the decisions that have to do with the baby are to them. Mm-hmm. And anything that has to do with your own personal body to you. Right, but sometimes it would be both. Like in the case of a breech baby, they might decide to do an external cephalic version where they manually turn mm-hmm. the baby. That's really going to affect both of you. Right. And then it would be something that you would talk to together. I think there was only a few times where I had them on the phone in the doctor's office or mm-hmm. on FaceTime in the doctor's office. And most of those were for the structural ultrasounds. And we did find out that there was a slight issue with a kidney. And so I had to go back to the, the larger ultrasound tech multiple times. And every time I would make sure that they were on FaceTime so that if the doctor had any questions, they could ask them directly. Mm-hmm. Um, if I needed to do any amniocentesis, that would be a conversation between all of us. Right. Because it affects both of you. Exactly. I see. Was there any difference to you, I guess physically, but maybe you can't separate mind and body, carrying a baby that wasn't yours? There was. People asked me a lot, isn't it going to be hard to give up the baby? Mm-hmm. And in my head from the very beginning, I kept saying, this isn't my baby. It's not my genetics. It's not the way that I have conceived in the past. It was a whole different process from the start. So I think that helped in mentally understanding that it wasn't mine. Mm-hmm. But there was a point towards seven or eight months into the pregnancy where I thought, 
what is going to happen when this baby comes out? Am I going to feel attached to it like I do my own? Or am I going to be detached from it? Towards the end, it definitely was also much more in front of my face of my belly was huge. And the kicks were something that I was counting like I would my normal pregnancies. But I wasn't feeling the same attachment. And I kind of felt that towards the end that I was like, okay, I'm ready to give this baby to its parents. I'm ready to say, when I'm done with the pregnancy, I'm not going to have to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the morning and worry about nursing all the time and worrying about diapers and worrying about, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do in terms of college and all that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit easier to then separate again as the pregnancy really progressed and I was very close to labor that this was not mine. Did they come in for your birth? They did. They were here about two weeks before I went into labor to make sure that they weren't going to miss it. And they were here for two weeks after to have us all be able to be together. So they were both in the delivery room with you? They were both in labor and delivery until a certain point. And then the the dad stepped out. Mm -hmm. And then the mom was there. And again, it was one of those decisions that we had said at the very beginning, I want you to be in the room, but I need you to stay north (laughs) of the body. And so even my best friend was in the room as well. And I had a doula. And my best friend kept saying, come, come see the baby being born. And and the mom kept saying, no, no, we talked about this. I don't want to be that close. I'm going to stay up here by her head, which I had sort of tuned out at that point. She could have been anywhere and Uh I wouldn't have cared. But um, she was very respectful of that, which I appreciated. Yeah. And then was the birth any different for you than other births, your other births? The birth was the best out of my four, to be honest. (laughs) Um, It was very strange to have that, that I was like, it's not even my baby and this was the best birth. Mm. Um, I used a doula, which I had wanted to do in my other pregnancies and my other labors, but just timing and money didn't work out properly. Mm -hmm. And then we were in a different situation for this. So towards the end of the pregnancy, it wasn't in our contract. And so I knew it was something that my husband and I would have to pay for. But I was very adamant about the fact that since my husband was going to be home with our kids, he was not going to be at oh, the hospital. Oh, he wasn't with you? Nope. That I needed a doula. I knew my best friend was going to be good support, but she's not trained in this. She's a lawyer. She has no idea how to help with birth and mm-hmm. labor. And so when I found the doula that I worked with, I knew that she was going to be the best person in the room for me and hopefully keep the labor to be what I wanted it to be, even though it wasn't my baby. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very quick labor. I ended up having to be induced because for a full week I was going into pre-labor and never progressed to full labor. And so finally, two days after my due date, my doctor said, I think we should probably start Pitocin and see what happens. And so I went in at four o'clock in the morning and by about six o'clock, my doula was there and I could feel the contractions coming stronger. And then the doctor came in and this was where we were all making decisions together that the doctor said, look, I can break your water and the labor is going to progress extremely quickly. And I deferred to the parents. I said, look, it is their decision. This is their baby. If they are comfortable with that happening, then by all means, I'm okay with that. And so we all made the decision together and they said yes. And two hours later, the baby was out. Oh, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Just that whole process is so fascinating. The last part that really threw me for a loop, which I didn't expect, was in our contract and in talking to my doctors, all the doctors and nurses knew that I was a surrogate and the parents were there with us. I thought they were going to give the baby directly to the mom. Uh-huh. They actually put the baby on me first. And I think if somebody had taken a picture, my first reaction was my face was just complete shock because I looked down and I was like, this isn't my baby. Why isn't it with her? And that was a little jarring, but was, it also I was helped. thinking in my mind that exact question, yeah. where does the baby go right after birth? 
I think it probably depends on how long the umbilical cord is, to be mm-hmm. honest. That I don't know how long it was, but I just know that they put the baby right on me. Right. They dried him off. They covered me up, and then they brought the father in to cut the cord. Okay. And then we did the afterbirth. Um, so the once they cut the cord, yeah, once yeah. they cut the cord, then they gave the baby to the mom. And then I was free to birth the placenta and have, make sure that was healthy and everything like that. And then once I was really covered and cleaned up, the dad was then allowed to come in and be a part of the room for the rest of mm-hmm. weighing the baby and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So did you provide milk for the baby at all? I or? did. I actually have just stopped weaning uh, yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Um, so you've been pumping. I have been pumping. And it's expensive to be able to fly the milk to where it needs to go. Yeah. And so after about six weeks or so, we decided that it was probably better for me to wean because it was just too difficult to get the milk to them. And fortunately, they have somebody where they live. Locally. That, locally. That has milk that's extra from their own pregnancy. So they have somebody that they can get milk from, which is mm-hmm. great. When I first had the conversation with the dad about stopping to pump, it was harder than I thought it was going to be because we're very close. They send me pictures all the time. I send them pictures of our kids. They're kind of like the aunt and uncle to my kids. I'm an only child, so this is really the only opportunity for them to have cousins and aunts and uncles like oh, that. true, yeah. And um, so it was a little bit harder than I thought it was going to be when the dad said, we're, we don't need you to pump anymore. Oh, wow. But over the last few weeks, it's been a little bit easier. And yesterday I pumped, I think, for the last time. I, it's been 24 hours and I'm not in pain, so it's off to a good start. But I'm glad that I could provide the milk for them for as long as I did. I learned a lot. I'm sure. In this episode, things I just never even thought about. And there's a million more questions and so many details. We didn't even go down those paths. Yeah. But it's a really informative conversation. I appreciate you for doing it. I wonder two things. One is, how have your kids been with you coming home? Because like your first two, they saw you go through pregnancy and come home with a baby. I know they knew it wasn't going to happen, but did they take it as you thought? My oldest did. She had time with the baby in the hospital and really got a chance to get to know the family very well. The last two weeks that they were here before I gave birth, we were together every day. And she took it very well. She likes seeing pictures. She likes FaceTiming with them. She understands completely that my body still needed to heal, even though the baby wasn't home with us. My third child... Also, to him, it was, doesn't everybody's mom have a baby and then give it to somebody else? (laughs) So he also just easily took it for granted and said, okay, we're done. And when I was pregnant, he would say, I want to help with hearing the baby or I hear the baby's heartbeat. Or he would take his little pretend stethoscope and put it on my belly and say, I'm going to meet the baby soon and we're going to give it to the parents. And he knows the parents' names and is very close with them. My middle child... I think, had the biggest adjustment to it. Yeah, you know, those middle kids. I know, those middle <laughs> ones give you the trouble. When I first came home, he started acting out a little bit like I would have expected him to if I had just had a baby and come home with a baby. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what the deal was because I felt like I was almost back to normal. I heal very quickly, thankfully. But at the same time, I knew I needed to give my body more time that I couldn't run around with them right away. I couldn't do all the things like jumping on the trampoline that I did before I got pregnant. But he was acting like a middle child who had just had a sibling, even though the sibling wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until we actually went to the house that they stayed in for Airbnb just with him that he got a chance to be with the baby and be with the parents that it 
connected for him. And after that point, I could almost see it in his head that it turned a corner and he has been back to his normal self. Wow. Yeah. It's hard at that age. I, mean, it's, uh, I think it's hard for a lot of adults. So It is. Um, my last question would be, would you do it again? I would do it again in a heartbeat. I the thought second you were the say baby that. came out, we all said, so when's the next uh, one? Do they have more babies' embryos? They do, thankfully, oh, cool. yes. So it could happen in the not too distant future. It could. Very cool. Yeah. And then you have such a wealth of information and experience that a lot of people don't have. You're going to put this down into a book. I am. What's the time frame on your book? I'm hoping before I get pregnant with the next baby, so within the year. Okay. I'll be looking out for it. Definitely. All right. Thanks again, Kalita, for coming. And at home, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you like the program, share us with your friends, leave us some feedback, and send us some topic suggestions at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you This kid's gonna test my will I got a lot to learn and my baby's due <laughs> This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike Dr. Mom Butt Bomb As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.